This is Wednesday's Women, hosted by Caitlin and Taylor. We invite you to join us in a candid conversation about the roles of women in political organizing and beyond as we celebrate the centennial celebration of the 19th Amendment. We hope that you find this episode educational, entertaining, and the women we discuss inspiring. If you like what you hear, subscribe and share. Yeah, but Oops. obviously we can, you know what I mean? Like any other time we record where we just kind of start whenever we feel like. Today is important. I, sh- oh, I should have put eyebrows on. Look at my face. I doubt Florence Nightingale did her makeup. That's like a sanitary. I know, but I'm not really her. And look at my eyebrows. They don't exist. Nurses, chime in in the comments. Do you wear your eyebrows? Do you wear your eyebrows? Is that a real thing? <laughs> do we, do do nurses, I'm sorry about my eyebrows. They're non-existent. I, I hate it more than you do. She's channeling Jenna Marbles. Didn't she shave her eyebrows once? Yeah, multiple times. She did two videos she, on it. She didn't wear her eyebrows everywhere. Today, we'll cover were Mabel Vernon and Florence Nightingale if you friends. didn't like, If you didn't, like, <laughs> kind of get what was happening based on our garb, because that is what's happening. Happy spooky season! And we're together for once, like, actually yeah, in person. So. I'm, Come and camped out on her couch for three days. We also tune in for a future episode where we discuss the five worst first ladies. Yeah, that will also be Because we spend a night ranking that. (laughs) That will. I like the energy in the room, Kristen. Okay. I know. So today, to celebrate spooky season, we will be covering the two people who we chose to dress up as. I chose Mabel Vernon. And I chose Florence Nightingale. Um, As covered (laughs) by the beginning eyebrow discussion. So... Um, I guess we'll just get into it. Yeah. I feel like we've... Why beat around the bush? Yeah. We've created this energy. We must keep the momentum going. So if you remember our discussion of Alice Paul and the Iron Jawed Angels, you might have a brief memory of Mabel Vernon. Um, I was introduced to Mabel Vernon through the Alice Paul episode and through Iron Jawed Angels. So, Mabel Vernon was born in Wilmington, Delaware, not to be confused with New Wilmington, Pennsylvania, where I was, where I live. I wasn't born there. (laughs) Part of a large Quaker Presbyterian family, she went to Swarthmore with Alice Paul. She graduated in 1906. (laughs) When was she born? Um... Well, she graduated in 1906. Yeah. The reason why this is a topic of conversation is we were trying to think whether or not Florence Nightingale and Mabel Vernon... Could have been friends. Initially, we said no because Florence Nightingale operated in England primarily, but Alice Paul did spend that study abroad time in England. And while I'm not sure, actually, I believe Mabel Vernon did not, she may have, like, had a mutual connection through Alice Paul. Perhaps Alice Paul needed a nurse at some point. She did throw rocks, so, I mean, it's a valid concern. True. But she met Alice Paul at Swarthmore College, and they graduated in 1906. During her college career, she won several awards as a debater, which is quite impressive. Um, And she later returned to school and earned her master's degree in political science from Columbia University. Um, Her master's was received in 1924. After graduation and her master's, Vernon taught Latin and German in a Pennsylvania high school before attending the National American Women's Suffrage Association Conference in Philadelphia in 1912. The following year, at Paul's invitation, Vernon worked as a regional fundraiser and recruiter for the Congressional Union for Women's Suffrage. So that was the sort of committee that they founded under NASA 
Um, the following year, in 1914, Mabel Vernon led the Congressional Union campaign against the Democratic congressional candidates in Nevada, along with Ann Martin. She was fairly familiar with political organizing and political campaigning because of her master's degree. We love an educated bitch. We do. And Mabel Vernon was educated, and she may have been a bitch. She soon headed the push to establish state branches in several western states. So if you recall, Nassau focused on getting each state to put it in their state constitution that, like, women were people and deserved human rights rather than asking the country because that was just far too much of an ask, I guess. Unclear. (laughs) When the Congressional Union asked Sarah Bardfield and other suffrage envoys to travel cross-country by automobile in 1915, Vernon worked as the advanced person. She organized the events and all of the meetings that were held in these different cities. She also set up transportation and she managed everyone's schedule. So while Alice Paul was truly the face of the Congressional Union and later the face of the National Women's Party, I would argue that it wouldn't have been possible without Mabel Vernon or someone in Mabel Vernon's place. Oh yeah, to deal with all the the everyday issues. Yeah, because I feel like a leader should be focused on, like, where do we go next? And so you need someone to be in charge of people's schedules and to make sure, you know, you're going to Nevada at the right time and you're showing up to this committee at the right time. And so I do think Mabel was a crucial part to both the CU and the NWP. She joined Alice Paul and others in testifying for women's suffrage before the House Judiciary Committee at the end of 1915. Vernon was described by her fellow activists as the first and perhaps the most outstanding of the National Women's Party organizers. She was quickly named secretary of the newly formed National Women's Party in June of 1916. Caitlin and I have both served as secretary for Student Senate and I've served as secretary for Model UN. And I'm not saying that the president doesn't have an important job and a time-consuming job, but I would say that secretary is one of the only positions that is equal to a president. Because it's necessary to be able to function a society. Yes, and just the workload the secretary carries. Like, you record all of your minutes, you keep everyone's contact information. Like You are in charge, like, sometimes of uh, reprimands and different things that go on for all the members contact lists yeah literally don't don't show up drunk to our events we don't appreciate that please no (laughs) um so i do think like secretaries are not something to be scoffed at and i feel like recently with like the idea of like oh she's so and so's secretary it has like a degrading take and i don't think that's like a fair thing i agree um look at my mom my mom is a secretary and literally without her i feel like her township would collapse Yeah, I feel like it's sometimes easier to operate without a president than without a secretary. Um, Obviously, without either, it's not a sustainable thing. Mm -hmm. But Mabel Vernon made being secretary her true legacy, which I appreciate so much. The following autumn, Vernon worked as a regional organizer doing street speaking and holding rallies to encourage citizens to not support the re-election of legislators who opposed a federal suffrage amendment. So not only did she organize all these events, but she also spoke at them. So she was very well educated in the topic of women's suffrage. In 1919, she participated in what was called the Prison Special Tour, which was done to dispel the fears that the NWP was too militant for, like, newly formed America. It was sort of old, but it wasn't as old as England, and they knew that the militant 
suffragettes in England had a lot of sway because you really can't stop a militant group. Like, you can take out the leader and you can take out the followers, but if the idea is still there, and it's the same thing we see today, like, I hate to compare them to a terrorist organization, but, like, you can't truly eliminate a terrorist organization because it's not people, it's an idea. And so they saw the militancy of the British suffragettes and feared that because the NWP was inspired by their motives that they would also be militant and so it really fell to Mabel and other speakers on the prison tour to say that like we're not militant we were standing around asking people to consider this topic and they threw people in prison Mm -hmm. and while in prison Mabel worked to broadcast that women were being force-fed they were being abused and that that really is unreasonable for someone whose only offense was you stood in the sidewalk too long. Um, During the two years leading up to the ratification of the 19th Amendment, Vernon reprised her role as a regional organizer and worked especially hard in Georgia, Kentucky, and Delaware because these were seen as three states that would be incredibly difficult to win over. Um, Vernon was also recognized for her audacious demonstrations during major presidential addresses Again, I believe Mabel Vernon to be a bitch, and I love that, because I am a bitch. Well, she was an educated bitch. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, one of the most notable of these is she called out President Wilson during his Independence Day speech in 1916, um, and following Wilson's closely contested re-election in November 1916, She and other National Women's Party activists secured front row gallery seats, so you're like the second floor. Yeah. For his annual address to Congress. During this speech, Vernon and the others unfurled a suffrage banner from inside Vernon's coat, an action that won publicity across the country. So basically, (laughs) she smuggled in this big ass (laughs) banner. And was just like, Wilson, what are you doing? Well, didn't it say, like, when will you... It was either, why don't you support women, or, like, when will you support women? I think it's women. when will you. It was something about, like... Supporting women. Yeah, he didn't and support it, women. it's shown really well in Iron Jotty Angels. That scene is there. Yeah. And that wasn't something that they, like, made up for the movie. Obviously, some scenes, like, we discussed the romance scene is likely a fake storyline. But that was, like, a truly a thing that happened and took the nation by storm because it was such such it a was, boss move. Yeah, <laughs> to be able, not only do you not, as a woman at this time, have power to persuade, to even hold a vote, but also you're going against the president in person in his arena, essentially. You're an outsider coming into his arena to fight him. Vernon was also among the first group of National Women's Party women sentenced to brief terms in the district jail. Um, She was one of the first to be charged with obstructing traffic while she picketed the White House. This occurred in 1917, and her sentence was not really similar to Alice Paul's because it was the first. I think they had like two weeks or something in a district jail. Um, But as they kept arresting people, they made the sentences greater and greater to sort of... I guess, deter them from, like... Continuing? Yeah, like, they they decided that they just scoffed at 10 days in jail, so they're like, you get two months of being force-fed. Mm-hmm. Vernon remained active in the National Women's Party in the 1920s and continued to serve as its executive secretary even after 
the 19th Amendment had been passed, so the National Women's Party then shifted to the ERA and worked to pass that. Um, as we've covered in previous episodes, unfortunately, the ERA did fail. Um, one of those radical amendments that argued that everyone is equal and deserves equal rights. But they worked on that for a long time, and Mabel Vernon not only maintained her activity in the National Women's Party for a long time, she also maintained the network and connections that she made there. Um, and so I really think that Mabel Vernon would define the National Women's Party as a huge part of her life, and I think the National Women's Party defines Mabel Vernon as a huge part of its success. I agree. With that being said, while we're still on the topic of suffrage, someone got a cat this summer and has made being a cat owner her entire personality. So, I found this while we were doing the summer season, and I was like, ooh, how can I insert my cat into this podcast? And I decided to hold off on it for a little bit, but I do want to take today to talk to you about- You're going to see a bunch of little videos as we speak about Mrs. Macaroni. Did you know that the- house cat was actually seen as a symbol of the women's suffrage movement um in popular mainstream culture at the time women were associated as animals and we still kind of do that today like men are dogs um there are personality tests where it's like are you a lion a beaver or like some other animal i've never heard of the other two we need to do it all the time in my health class and i thought it was the dumbest thing i was always a beaver didn't want to be a beaver i wanted to be a golden retriever but you know We don't always get what we want. In popular mainstream culture at the time, women were associated with animals perceived as passive, um, and the prime animal was a cat. I can say my cat sleeps most of the day, so she is a very passive animal. Social norms dictated that middle-class white women should stay in the home. Men, however, were expected to occupy public spaces and partake in physical exercise. As a result, men were associated with physically active animals, like dogs or wolves, So anti-suffrage artists use these animals symbolically and liberally in their cartoons. A number of American cartoons showed men at home with a cat taking care of the children, and this was done to emasculate him, and so the cat sort of symbolized that his wife had put him in the home and he wasn't allowed to leave. Um, Some people genuinely believe that if women participated in politics, men would be left at home to raise the children, and that essentially society would like crumble because i guess dads aren't competent enough to take care of their kids which is like not an okay. a garbage take yeah agree because <laughs> that just plays into the the normal uh gender roles that men are like yeah. incompetent and that's also not the case that, like like the joke that like if you leave your kids home and dad has to cover dinner they're definitely getting takeout yeah many men can cook and that's like an unnecessary stereotype. But it was a true fear people had during the 19th Amendment. So, in April 1916, suffragists Neil Richardson and Alice Burke started a cross-country road trip in a two-seater car they called the Golden Flyer, which I think is a pretty cute name for a two-seat car. Just saying. I just think the idea of them going cross-country in a two-seat car is it's adorable. cute. It's cute. And then over the next several months, the women stopped in the New Jersey, Maryland, Virginia, Ohio, Texas, California, Washington regions, and other states across the country to talk about the importance of women's suffrage. During this trip, the women adopted a cat that became their unofficial mascot, which is, like Taylor said, the reason why cats are connected to the suffragette movement. They named the cat Saxon, and after, after the manufacturer of the Golden Flyer, which was the car they were traveling in, and over the next several months, the women spent long hours standing on street corners and in public uh, parks making speeches about suffrage. 
Alice Burke commented that they were in the sun so often that they let their noses blister and burn and their hair sizzle. Ow. That's dedication. It is. And they also said that they were not the only ones enduring the hot weather. Burke wrote in her diary, The little black kitten is suffering as much as we are from the heat, but he keeps under a cover and we all can see around the corner of it is a pink nose and a youthful whisker. So this little kitty was doing more than most to try to get women the right to vote. I also just can't imagine being, like, a black cat at that time. Because there's still, like, people who are freaked out by black cats. But not as much as there were in yeah, the early... like, in 1920, they were like, if you see a black cat, you're going to die. Yeah. And, like, I've owned several black cats, and you don't die. So as you can see, um, Macaroni has found a pretty interesting spot to call home because... Her owner is also a suffragette <laughs> in a lot of ways, so. We were meant to be. Yes. So, it is my turn, and as you can't tell by my little outfit here, I am dressed oh, and my lamp that I half-painted that is actually <laughs> a, uh... I wasn't going to snitch on you. Oh, no, I'm, I'm completely aware of my inadequacies. I don't think it's an inadequacy. I think you should be impressed because we paid no more than three dollars for well, the paint and the But like our whole outfit is either stuff that we previously owned, stuff that we made, and or stuff that we thrifted. Yeah. And so it's a very and so it was a very eco friendly yes, Halloween project. I would, I would say. But I decided to do my person on not a political figure in the normal sense of political figures, but on the first um, nurse. Obviously, there were nurses before Florence Nightingale, um, but she is really the one who revolutionized and created modern nursing. She is, as they said in Drunk History, the mother of modern nursing, and I like that. Um, so Florence Nightingale, she was from Britain. Um, she was born, though, in Italy. Um, she was a social reformer. She was also a statistician, which a lot of people don't remember. Um, and she's best known as the mother of modern nursing. Um, her experience as a nurse during the Crimean War especially were very, like, um, important to her story because that is whenever she found her original views and information about sanitation. And from there, her efforts to reform healthcare greatly influenced the quality of care in the 19th and 20th century, and people still read her work today. So, to start about Florence's personal life, so she was born May 12, 1820, in, like I said, Florence, Italy, to uh, Francis Nightingale and William Shore Nightingale. Um, and I also just wanted to make note real quick, May 12th is the day of International Women, or International Nurses Day, in honor of her. I think that's, like, weird that they named their daughter after the town they were in. Yeah. Like, what if I was just Pulaski Boyd? Like, that would be weird. Be sad. I would be sad, honestly. Yeah. Grass flat Krupa. <laughs> or, no, where your town? Clearfield Krupa <laughs> is where, if it's the hospital. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, so Florence was the younger of two children that the couple had, and she was um, very lucky because they were a fluent British family, and they belonged to an elite social class. Both of her parents, her mom came from a very elite family, her father had a very wealthy job. I can't remember off the top of my head what he did. But um, they were both very wealthy, very high in social class, 
and they were both very assured that their daughters were going to be the same. <laughs> Except Florence was like, I, I'm not going to do that. Um, psych. So um, Florence Nightingale had this epiphany that she felt that God wanted her to go and care for the sick and ill. And she was like, oh, this is like my my entire, like this is a calling from God. This is what I'm meant to do with my life. So she goes to her parents and she's like, guys, I've had this calling from God. It's awesome. I need to go and become a nurse. And they were like, bruh, nice try. You're going to go and get married to Joe Schmo over here. And you're going to be a wealthy woman. And you're going to be a good lady. And to Rome another town in Italy so she would marry Rome Schmo Rome Schmo but so they're like no nice try you're not doing that nursing is for the poor and unwealthy and unsocialized people and she was like mm, disagree um so they actually ended up forbidding her from going forward with her career and to top it all off during the Victorian era um they brought forward a gentleman when she was 17, and she refused to, the marriage proposal from him. His name was Richard Monkton Mounds, M-I-L-N-E-S. And they describe him as a suitable gentleman, but she said, like, I can't imagine marrying because it will, while, because the way she described it was, even if he is, like, the perfect gentleman for me as far as romantic and friendship, there will always be a part of my life that feels empty if I marry, which will be her need to do for others and her education because she was educated and she liked being educated and she wanted to continue um, learning and doing for others. So because she was being such a stubborn lady, um, her parents were like, okay, we're done. We're not fighting you on it anymore. So they let her go in 1844 to be enrolled as a nursing student in the Lutheran Hospital of Pastor Fildner in Kaiserworth, Germany. Um, she worked there for three months. She was in school for three months. Which, I mean, is a long time back then, I guess, for... How long you live to be 90 years old? Okay, yeah. And for what she accomplished, also. For what she accomplished. Also, we'll discuss, like, some financial stuff in the future. But for going to school only for three months, she made out. She did. Yeah. So... She went there, she got her thing, and she started working. Um, people were already taking recognition to her. She had only been a nurse for less than a year, and she was elevated to be in charge of her unit and um, in charge of, like, the staff at her hospital or wherever she was working. So everyone was like, wow, damn, she's, like, going for it, really. Well, then the Crimean War started. So she was requested by um, different people in upper government to take a number of nurses and go over to um, Constantinople so they could help. Yeah, Constantinople and da, da, da. Yeah. We don't know any other part, part of, of the song. song. Just Constantinople. Constantinople. Yeah, Do you know it? That is Dante, Caitlin's fiance. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. We drug to our school library yeah. at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. It's fine. <laughs> so, um, 
She worked for the Crimean War. She did end up getting infected during the war, and she was bedridden at the age of 38, which is a bummer. Um, and she did eventually pass away suddenly, um, weakened also from her Crimean fever, at the age of 90 at her home in London. She did good, though. She did. <laughs> so, early career. So, like we already said, she went and she did her studying in Germany, came back early 1850s, um, she returned to London. She took a job in a Middlesex hospital for ailing governesses. So still upper class, like not dealing with lower class individuals. Um, but still honorable work. Her performance there was super impressive. Employer thought that she was the bee's knee. They promoted her to superintendent just a year after being hired. Um, the position proved challenging for her. She grappled with a cholera outbreak and unsanitary conditions due to the rapid spread of the disease in that hospital. So that was like the first time she ever had to experience um, reoccurrent infections for an entire population. And she made it her mission at that time that she's like, I have to fix all this stuff. It, everything's dirty. I don't want to touch anything. Hygiene practices are bad. Everyone's dying. This is not okay. So she was like, I need to improve everything so we can significantly lower the death rate at this hospital. And it was working. And that is where she started to get that recognition where they were like, hmm, things are going pretty bad in Constantinople. Can we get some help? So in 1854, during the beginning of the Crimean War, no fewer than 18,000 soldiers had been admitted to military hospitals. So they were swamped. And if you read accounts about what was going on in these hospitals, it was absolutely atrocious. They were rat-infested, lice-infested. They were, some of them, the hospitals were built on, like, uh, cesspools. So it was truly, people sat in their own excrement for a number of time. People were dying at a really fast rate, and it wasn't just from war injuries. But, like, who had that idea? Who was just, like, you know where a hospital should be they over this cesspool? They, I, at the time, they did not know about, like, the infectious, the cycle of infection. So, like, the cycle cycle of infection would be, like, you have the route of, en you have the bacteria or the virus or the parasite. You have the route of entry. It goes in you. It's either going to do its thing or it's going to jump to something else. And you either need to stop that route of infection somewhere in the process or you're going to continue having people getting infected. And they didn't recognize that yet. Well, I guess I wasn't even thinking about cesspools smell bad. Like, I wouldn't want to, like, that was genuinely my first thought. Like, I would not want to work in a facility where it smelled like a cesspool. True. And I would not want to recuperate. Re re recuperate? I guess recover or recuperate in anything that smelled like a cesspool. True. Um, at the time, before Florence and her team went over, there were no female nurses sta stationed at the hospital. And it was due to the poor reputation past female nurses had in the war office to, in a, because of that avoided hiring women um and so whenever Florence and her team first went there they were met with a lot of like scrutiny and they were like we don't want your help but then they quickly realized we're swamped we need it we need your help or everyone's gonna die and they were like okay but late 1854 she received a letter from the Secretary of War Sidney Herbert um asking her to organize that group of women, 34 nurses, to tend to the sick and fallen soldiers there. She quickly was like, of course, no big deal, let's go. Um, she got them from, a, she got the women um, 
from a variety of religious orders and sailed with them to Crimea just a few days later after the call came. So, like we already said, conditions were absolutely horrible. Um, nothing could have prepared these women for what they faced. Um, and when they arrived to Skatari, which is like the British base hospital in Constantinople, they were like, wow, this is so much worse than we thought. Not only is it on a cesspool, but um, soldiers were dying from infectious diseases like typhoid and cholera and injuries that incurred in battle. But as we'll talk about later, there was so much worse things happening with the infection rate than what was being caused by, like, the battle injuries. So um, she instituted the creation of an invalid's kitchen where appealing food for patients with special dietary requirements was cooked. She established a laundry so that patients could have clean linens, and she also instituted a classroom and a library for patients' intellectual stimulation and entertainment. She was one of those type of nurses where she looked at everyone and was like, wow, People need to be taken care of as wholes. Just because you come in and you have a broken leg or a gunshot wound to your leg doesn't mean I need to only focus on your leg. I need to make sure the rest of you is clean, make sure you're not drinking things that are contaminated, getting proper nutrition so that way you have what you need nutritionally to heal that infection. And also I'm going to make sure you feel okay emotionally. And those are the things that really brought soldiers to realizing, wow, this woman is the only person who cares about me. And you know, this is, like, different than anything else I've ever experienced, and this is the way it should be when you're sick. Um, and that's why I have this, because she, uh, soldiers soon realized just her, that her compassion and her caring nature was something that needed to be truly honored, and she would go around all hours of the day, night, day, and people used to call her Lady of the Lamp, because the soldiers would see her coming, and all she would have would be her lamp and her caring. And they would know that she's going to do what she can to help you. All Others also called her the Angel of Crimea. But through all of the actions that her and her team took, they were able to reduce the hospital's rate down by two-thirds. The death rate went from 40% to 2%, which is mind-boggling. It's also, like, kind of depressing to think that that many people were dying from something preventable? Yeah, I guess that, like, and maybe my math's wrong, because I didn't do, I'm not a statistician, I barely pass stats, in fact. Me too. But, um, that, like, 38% of those deaths that occurred in that time frame could have been prevented. Yes. With essentially minimal upgrades, like, there were no technological advances, no. or it was like, hey, you shouldn't let flies eat his dead skin. And they were like, you oh, should you clean their linens, do laundry, make sure that th this was another thing I didn't do a lot of research into. But I believe at the time, if you re and also if you read Florence Nightingale's work, um, another big thing is sterilizing equipment between patients. So if you're going to do like a leg amputation on Joe Schmo, don't use the exact same scalpel dirty over on someone else. You know what's really weird about that? What? That means that at that same time, tattoo practices were more sterile than medicinal practices. Because even at that time, tattoo needles were either discarded or, like, soaked and clean. There was, like, a traditional Japanese cleansing that took place for Japanese tattoos. And in Japan at the time, if you got a tattoo, you were a prisoner or a gang member. Interesting. But they had better sanitary practices, so. Exactly. Um, but when she returned home, she met with Queen Victoria, and Queen Victoria was like, oh my god, it's amazing what you guys did. Like, I want to give you all this money, but I need to know more about, like, what happened. 
And so she was like, wow, I did really notice a lot of things that happened in Crimea. I should write a book about it. So she wrote notes on matters affecting the health, efficiency, and hospital administration of the British Army, which was an 830-page report analyzing her experience of proposing reforms for other military hospitals operating under poor conditions. And it's important to note, too, at this time, she had already had um, Crimean fever, so she was bedridden already. So she wrote this 830-page book in bed. She wrote it by hand. Were typewriters a thing then, or were they still, like... Oh, I would assume it's still pen and ink in 18, 18, like, 50s. I don't know when typewriters came around. When were typewriters made? Okay. We don't know. We have no fact-checking on this. No fact-checking. We researched the people we discussed, but if we have questions that we didn't think to research... I don't have my phone or I'd Siri it. When were typewriters invented? 1878. So probably... Is that the date you got? I got 1860. Either way, before Florence Nightingale wrote this book. So she most definitely either dictated it or wrote it by hand. Um, But that book would spark a total uh, restructuring of the War Office's administrative department, including the establishment of a Royal Commission for the Health of the Army in 1857. Um... And after she gave this report, the queen was super impressed with her. And she said, listen, um, I want to give you this brooch that came to be known as Nightingale's Jewelry. And I also want to give you $250,000, 1857 money um, by the British government for all the work you did. Which is, I can't do this mental math. We looked it up last night. $7.5 million for three months of schooling. That I'm assuming cost very little because she just trained under someone. Didn't she probably she? didn't. Even, probably no. It was a. It was like a. Yeah. It was like a school of like you study under a physician at that so, time. So sort of like a trade school for nursing. Kinda. Okay. And the thing is, was it it's not like I mean, you weren't doing what we do today. Like you might give like you don't do charting. You don't do anything like minimal technological issues. Yeah, like, you're it's not basic. MRI scanning. Yeah, exactly. So. She got all that money, and instead of using it for herself, she's like, oh, I don't want this for me. I'm going to use it to further my cause. So in 1860, she founded the establishment of St. Thomas's Hospital, and within it, the Nightingale Training School for Nurses, which was the first nursing school, like official nursing school, like academically based, not trade-based, ever. And so through that, like that still exists today, and the practices that she created were influential for the entire world as far as like what do we do to like actually keep things sanitary but did you apply to the nightingale school of nursing no it's in it's in it's in britain not a word well also (laughs) if you wherever you go to school oh you have to work there there. yeah because even with states if i wanted to go to another state i would have to take my nclex again Uh, Mm oh political science isn't that way they just Send you off into the world. Yeah. Go destroy a country. So, so following the Crimean War, um, she was residing in Mayfair, and she remained an authority and advocate for healthcare reform, interviewing politicians, and welcoming distinguished visitors from her, from her bedside, essentially. Um, in 1859, she published Notes on Hospitals, which focused on how to properly run civilian hospitals. And uh, throughout the U.S. Civil War, she was frequently consulted about how to best manage field hospitals. 
Um, she also served as an authority on public sanitation issues for India for both military and civilians, although she never actually ever went to India herself. So her, uh, her, not stature. Reputation. Her reputation obviously oversaw her, like, you know, for them to contact her. She never even went to their country, and they were seeking her advice. Um, but through all of this, not only do we have the theories presented by her and the um, books that she's written, we also have the first pie chart. So she was a statistician, and following the Crimean War, um, some doctors and physicians worked with her because they were like, listen, we really need to, like, look over this data. So they created... Um, Oh, I forget the name of it, but it's like this different type of pie chart, and I'll include it here on the screen somewhere. And it's got like little triangles all throughout it. And it shows you the degree of how many patients per month were dying from infectious diseases or from wounds, like from other, like their battle injuries. Mm -hmm. So to show you the most of the patients were dying from preventable infections instead of actual injuries it kind of looks like a stacked bar graph if you yeah. took the x-axis and twirled it like a spaghetti noodle true but so as you can see with having very little other than her affluent family which obviously puts her ahead of others at her time with very little she did an immense thing and because of what she did nursing became a profession and a reputable profession at that because before this if you became a nurse you were seen as poor and lowest of the low so she took that and made it into what it is today and it's really interesting because now we're in a pandemic and mostly women are nurses majority of nurses are women and so it just goes to show you how important it is that we look at women's history and women's stories because mm -hmm. you know we're all what everyone does is important and now we're really relying on nurses. We are. And I do think it's important. Obviously, everyone's story is important. And the reason we started Wednesday's Women is that women like Florence Nightingale aren't discussed. Yeah. And sometimes what's so sad about that is we'll discuss Nazi doctors who are men ahead of important doctors who are women. Because even though the Nazis were terrible, technically they did make medical contributions. Mm -hmm. Still terrible people. Still deserved their fate. But they're discussed for their medical contributions. I mean, eugenics is still a huge topic of... Debate. You know, is it Philosophy. allowable? Yeah, but just the idea of the practice being formed. And we don't talk about Florence Nightingale. And I do not consider having an International Day of Nursing as discussing Florence Nightingale. Because there's a Constitution Day, and people still couldn't pass the citizenship test. Just yeah. saying. But yeah, so I think that just kind of answered our discussion question, which is why did we choose who we choose? Well, it didn't answer about Mabel. Why did you choose? Well, yeah, why did you choose Mabel? I chose Mabel because I relate to her. I've always said that I would rather be a secretary or an organizer than like, I don't want to say a leader, but like head a of figure. the movement. Yeah, like I don't want to be a figurehead because like that's a lot of decisions and like. Decisions that don't necessarily have, like, a logical reasoning. When you're choosing a hotel, you look at how far is it, how nice is it. Like, you can reasonably make these decisions. So I just really related to the idea that, like, Mabel Vernon really allowed the National Women's Party to be as successful as it was. 
And I also feel like she doesn't receive the same credit that Alice Paul. And no. Is it Lucy Stone or Lucy? Hey, no, that's an actress. Burnt. Burnt. Lucy Burns was Alice Paul's friend. Lucy Stone was another suffragette. Lucy Hale's an actress. Yes. Um, I feel like they get a lot of credit, and they did establish these organizations, but I don't think they could have established and run as efficiently as if they hadn't had Mabel Vernon. I also just appreciate her, like, take no shit and take no prisoner attitude of, like, getting arrested and then going on tours and being like, you don't even realize what they're doing to these women. Yeah. And, I mean, they did not deserve to go to prison, but they knew fully well when they would go out to stand on the sidewalk every day that they would get arrested and eventually be put in prison. Um, And so I just really appreciated her motivation. And I appreciate an educated bitch. Me too. I love when... (laughs) When we get to talk about women who are like that. Yeah. Because they just don't care. And so, like, and that's what we want to be. We want to be women who don't care. Yeah. We just show up, do our best. And that's and the leave. best. Mm-hmm. And with that, this has been this Halloween episode of Wednesday's Women. Uh, this upcoming episode that we're going to film, which you will see probably right after this one, is our election special. Yes. Yes. And we just want to take this opportunity to remind everybody that it's women like Florence and Mabel who should have been having more of a seat at the table. And so you should take your opportunity to give your two cents by being a registered voter and voting in this election. Yeah. Vote early. Vote by mail if it's still available in your state. Go to the polling place and use Hannah 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 Santa. Use your hand of Santa, kids. Yeah. (laughs) Wash your hands, wear your mask, and vote. And vote. Yeah. So with that, we will see y'all next time. This has been Wednesday's Women, sponsored by the Clarion University CU Engaged Coalition. The thoughts and ideas presented in this podcast are meant to be for entertainment purposes first and foremost. And we do not claim to be experts in any field. As always, thanks for listening, and make sure you go out and register to vote.